This is Pursuing Justice, and I'm Harriet Hendel. I'm glad you joined us today as we are continuing our discussion with members of an organization called Witness to Innocence. It's a nonprofit founded by Sister Helen Prejean, the only group of its kind composed of and led by death row exonerees. The last time we met on Pursuing Justice, we spoke with Lawyer Johnson, a member of the group. Today, we have Perry Cobb with us. Perry is from Illinois, and his case dates back to 1979. Welcome, Perry, to the program. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, so we're we're trying to share all these stories of each one of you that have agreed to uh, come on the program. You had five trials, and you talked when we spoke earlier uh, before we recorded the program. Um, you talked about bias, racial, racial bias, and judicial bias. Can you explain a little bit about um, what, you, what you mean by that? Well, the best I can do is that when I was first arrested, I was at a hotel. I'm a professional songwriter, and I was writing songs, waiting for Camilla Lane and Minnie Ripperton to pick me up because we started a group in California. Mm-hmm. Now, that was a knock on my door. And when I went to answer the door, the door just broke wide open and these guys came in with guns. I'd never seen guns like this a day in my life. They didn't have police uniforms, anything like that on, just plain clothes. Uh, I had just got out of the shower, so they made me stand in the hall with no clothing on. Oh, my God. But naked. And... Uh, one had a pistol and put it in the back of my head and was rubbing up up and down from the base of my skull and telling me to shut up. And I wouldn't shut up. I was making noise. And some people started coming out of their rooms. And I said to them, please follow these people. They said they'd take me to the police station. I don't see no uniforms or any kind. haven't seen no badges of any kind, period. So they took me to the police station, but there were three cars was trailing us, and those were the people from the hotel, three people, and they they trailed us to the, to the police station. When I got there, they was questioning me, and no, not really questioning, telling me that you did it, you did it, and that 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 word, that nigger word, you you did it, you did. It. I said, did what? They said, you know what you did, you know what you did. They wouldn't tell me, right? So now this is bothering me because these people came to, came to the hotel where I do my writing. That's all I did there. Kicked the door open, got guns all pointing at me and then rubbing one off the base of my skull butt naked and taking it to the police station and telling me I did it and won't tell me what, it, what it's all about. So... While we were in the police station, they put handcuffs on me and, and hooked me up to uh, this, what do you call it thing, uh, 
where 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 the heat come out of. They they had me hooked up to, to that, and it was mm. hot. The handcuff got hot. It was burning my was burning my hand, my wrist, my wrist, and they wouldn't take it off. Mm. And was telling me they said, well, we know that you didn't do this, said, but this is what we want you to do. I said, what are you talking about? They said, we want these two guys here, right here. They said, well, all you got to do is sign these papers right here, and we'll get them, and we'll let you go. Hmm. So I didn't understand that. I said, okay, I'm going to play this game with them. I'm trying to find out what's going on, because they won't tell me anything. This went on for about a half an hour. Then they took me and put me in, in a cell. And Earl Grant hollered at me. He said, hey, Perry, Perry, I'm trying to figure out who was just calling me. And it was Earl Grant. This white guy they called Frenchie. I had met him once once in my whole life. But he was an artist. He drew pictures. And he said, Perry, we got the same case. I said, what, what kind of case is it? So he told me what the case was. He told me that these people had got killed and robbed. Now, this floored me. I haven't robbed nobody, haven't killed no one. Don't even want a gun. <laughs> so now we're going to change it. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. How did they hook me up with him? He's a, a addict. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't smoke marijuana. I don't do drugs. I do none of that. So they got him hooked up. They said that he said that we got the same case. They pulled me out of this cell again. Take me back to the little room and questioned me, going through changes. Then they called in a state's attorney. Now I never heard anything like this in my life. He was a state's attorney coming into the police station this time of night. Mm. What is this all about? Real strange to me. Okay, I won't go along the program. They told me say I had a few hours, and if I didn't go along with the program, they was gonna give me this case. Now I know what the case is, but I don't know who the victims are. I don't know where it happened. Okay. So we're going through these changes, and I wouldn't go along with them. And they told me, they said, well, we're going to give you the case. And the state's attorney took them in there. He wrote something up and told me, this is how you write the case out, and you'll get a true bill when they take me to court. They took me back to the cell. In about 15 minutes, they took me out the cell, and they took Earl Grant out the, the cell that he was in, and they walked us up some stairs. While we were going up the stairs, it was light, like the sun was beneath us, shining up. All of these reporters with their cameras taking pictures of us. And the police was walking like he didn't capture a line or something. He got me walking real proud behind us, holding us, right? This is something that's getting on my nerve. I don't understand. Why am I going through these changes? I haven't anything to anyone period at all they took it on the stairs they took the pictures 
They took us over to Cook County Jail. They put us in a cell after they took blood, took blood from us in pictures. Mm-hmm. Put us on the on the tier. Now Earl Grant and I on the same tier, and we charged with a double murder mm-hmm. and a double um robbery. A couple of days later, we get some information that Dobby Tillis have volunteered. Went to, went to the police station, said they was looking for him. And he too is a stranger to me. I met him once in my life. I've seen him twice. He, he come, they put him on the same tier with us. And we all three are strangers, charged with a double murder and double armed robbery. David Tillis is an alcoholic. Earl Grant is a addict. Terry Cobb don't smoke cigarettes. Don't drink whiskey. Don't take pills. Do no drugs. An entertainer. I was singing with the creations before that and the Deftones after that. And then many represent Sidney Barnes and Lou Barnes and I have formulated a group. Well, we, they had moved to California, and I was supposed to join them there. But that was all gone now. Yeah, of course. I'm in, I'm in Cook County Jail that I know for a fact it's a death house. Mm-hmm. When I was a child going to school, Francis E. Willard at 49... 19 St. Lawrence, that was a school. They was the executed men in Cook County Jail. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the electric chair. How I know this, my school went to the county jail for a tour. And I'm, I'm a boy. I'm, I'm not perfect. We mischievous. There's three of us. <laughs> we looked in this room where the glass on, on the front so we opened the door and saw the electric chair with a man sitting there with his leg was busted wide open you could see veins in his leg <laughs> so this scared us we closed the door we didn't tell nobody about it I started oh, telling some of our classmates and it finally got to the, to the teachers here and then it got to our parents later on what we had, we had no business doing it, but we did it. No, you, that's incredible. What a story. <laughs> yeah, this, this is how I know that they killed people there for real because I heard, heard my granddad and my father talking one day when they was going to execute a man. It was in there about 7, 8 o'clock at night. They was talking about it, and I overheard it. Mm-hmm. And we started asking questions about it. So we explained to her that this was a, what they did to execution that were criminals. So my parents and grandparents had told me that these things would happen. But as a child, I saw the chair for the first time in my life. 
That's the only place that I've seen a electric chair in my life, period. But it had a man in it with his leg busted wide open. Frightening. Very frightening. So, so, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But I, I wanted you to tell our listeners what, what happened that you were finally, finally uh, exonerated from this um, bogus crime that they said you committed, which, you, of course, you did not. So how did it turn around? Well, I had my first trial. Mm -hmm. They took me over to 13th in Michigan. This was known as the kangaroo court. They had a 98% conviction rate there. Nine times out of ten, when you go there, you would be convicted. They had other individuals that had went there before me had went to death row. And my chances of getting away from there was like zero. What happened, we was picking a jury in Judge, Judge Close's courtroom. And they kept Excluded, moving, moving all the black Jews that came up. They kept moving them away, moving them away, cutting them loose. And finally, they had 11 whites, and they took one black juror in there from Mississippi, old black man, Mississippi. And this frightened me because my conception about a black man from Mississippi was afraid of white people, and he's old. That's, that, that was how I looked at it. I wasn't certain, but this is how I had looked at it, or had we going on in the South mm-hmm. with black people. So now I knew in my heart that I was going to get convicted. And During the course of the trial, yeah. they had a witness, Phyllis Santina, and they had an eyewitness named Arthur Shields. Arthur Shields has stated that we looked like the men, that we were not the men at one time, and then he turned around and told the state again that we were the men. Hmm. This was Dr. Phyllis and I, because they had already let Earl Grant go home to dress out. Time considered served. This is the white boy. Mm-hmm. They got the black man charged with the crime, but the white man, they let him go home. He never went to trial. Never. Gee. Okay. On cross-examination, Arthur Shields told my lawyer, Randolph Stone, that he had never said that we were the men. He said, we just looked like the men. He said that several times. So this is on the record. The stenographer's writing all this down. Anyway, here we come. We broke a record there. 
we got a mistrial. No one had got a mistrial at 13 in Michigan in a long time. We was the first ones to do that. They said that was a win there. That's what the lawyers were saying. We won here, and it's a mistrial. I'm saying they got me crazy. How, how did you win? And they talk about trying me again. Hmm. Took us back to Cook County Jail, set the date for the new trial, and took us back to 13th in Michigan, right back in front of Judge Close. Same one. The same judge. You never forget him because he had britches. He would call them high water britches. And he had them around the calf of his leg. That's as, as, as high. It, it wouldn't go down to his ankles like if, 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 if people was wearing nails. He had it high, high. So you never get judged close. Now, during the second trial, not what they're doing is was checking the checking the jurors out. The state's attorney stopped it. And went and told the judge that this black man was affecting the jurors. And we looked around, this was the same black man that was on the first juror and came back in the audience with his grandson watching to see what's going on. They put that man out the courtroom with his grandson. All oh he wanted to do, mm. all he wanted to do was see the trial. Just watch, right? That's all. Just watch like everybody else was watching. They singled him out and put him and his grandson out of the courtroom. On see, the state's attorney saying that he was affecting the jury. He wasn't doing anything with sitting there. No, he was just watching. Seems to me that would be a violation of his rights. All he came to do was watch. That's all, right? It was, it was a violation of his rights. But this, this is how they ran the courtroom. Yeah. You asked us about the racism. It was there. Oh, yes. I mean, it hurt yeah, deeply. So now they put him out. I had relatives and friends there. It bothered them. But they put that they put that one person out of the courtroom. This is real strange. Now they want this man to saying he's affecting the jurist and he's just sitting there with his grandchild watching. This is really something. Did he, did, we back? did he object? Um did he object to being removed from the courtroom? No, ma'am, he he did not. He was, mm. he was an old black man mm. from Mississippi with his grandchild. He didn't raise right. no right. type of energy. He probably he knew not, not to. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. All right, so. so. They're back, they, they back to picking the jury. They got the jury, and they wind up. They had two blacks and and, and, and the whites. Mm-hmm. It's 12 years, right? So mm -hmm. now, we are starting trial now. I told my lawyers, this prosecutor named Boy Herrick was a big, tall man. And he kept coming up to where I was sitting at the lawyer's table. 
putting his hand and fingers all right by my face, almost touching me. So I moved back. He had rolls on my chair. I rolled back. And I told my Lord, I said, tell this man to keep his hands out of my face. So the Lord asked him. He kept doing it. So the Lord asked the judge, close, to stop it. And he didn't stop it. So the next time he did it, I stood up in the courtroom. And I asked the judge. The judge told me to sit down that I had attorneys that could handle my case very well. Well, I don't know what I was doing. I said, yes, I do know this much. I know this man is putting his hands in my face. I know my attorneys have asked you to stop him from doing it. I know you have did that. So I'm going to have to stop it. How are you going to stop it? I said, let him do it again. Now, this they took that as a threat. I was serious about it. This man had been to the bathroom. I don't know if he didn't wash his hands or not. If he had been to a perfume parlor, <laughs> I don't want his hands. Right, of face. course. Of course. So now they saying that Perry Cobb is a violent person because I'm speaking out about a health matter and a respected matter. You don't treat people like that. You know, I, I'm not a cattle. You don't do me like that. I'm not going to take that. I'm fighting for my life. But I'm not going to set up and let you stick your nasty hands in my face. So I was told that, okay, Mr. Cobb, what we'll do, we'll put you in the bullpen. I said, okay, no problem. We'll have the, the uh, bailiff to come and just put handcuffs on you and gag you. I said, no, sir. No one's going to gag me. No one's going to. The handcuffs, I'll put my hands out. I'll do that. But I'm not going to take no gag. I'm not going to put a gag on me. Right. All right. So now, they, we'll put you in the bullpen. All right, Perry, I have, I have to interrupt you. I hate to do this, but we're, we want to complete the interview, and I want the listeners to know that when you were finally exonerated, you were the first man to be taken off death row in the state of Illinois, and that was back in 1987. So you finally found justice, but it took five trials to find it, right? So... Yes. What, what, where are you today? And again, we don't have, we only have a couple minutes left, but um, where, where are you at today in terms of what happened to you, the injustice that you had to deal with? Are you in a better place today, would you say? Uh, I don't quite understand what you mean, a better place. What do you mean, where? Well, it just emotionally in a better place, you know. Okay. Have you have you adjusted to life on the outside? Uh, to adjust to life, it's a constant thing that's going on. I'm still under the gun of racism at this at this juncture right now. It's 2020. I'm still facing racism, still going on in my life. Yes, I'm sure. I had to leave Chicago. I'm now in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Nothing, and has, nothing has changed. I'm still facing racism. You'll be surprised because it's almost everywhere. It's like a breath of air. When you breathe, you got it. 
Yes, yes. Is it better in Tennessee than in Illinois? Living conditions, yeah, I would say so, mm-hmm. because Chicago is a is a a violent place, and Memphis is a violent place. But Memphis is like a piece of pie compared <laughs> to Chicago. Compared. Right, right. All right. Well, police are than they are there. Yeah. Well, I I I so appreciate that you took time today to share your story. Um, with us. I I thank you very, very much for doing that. It's been good to talk to you. And I want to tell my listeners that next time we're going to meet Randall Padgett, also from Witness to Innocence. And I thank everyone for being with us today, but especially Perry for um, staying with us and, and talking about your story. And I wish you well. Thank you, Perry. Thank you, ma'am. You're welcome. Thank you.